Psalm 9. To the choir master, according to the Muthlaban, we'll talk about what that might mean, a Psalm of David. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have set on the throne, giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. Their very memory has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established His throne for justice and He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. A stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know Your name put their trust in You. For You, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek You. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion Tell among the peoples His deeds. For He who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they have made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made Himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are ensnared in the work of their own hands. Higayon, Selah. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord. Let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before You. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Selah. Well, a question, and this is not uh, rhetorical. Somebody of you could maybe answer this for me. What, what is your favorite psalm in Scripture? So we, we, we have those, and, and, and many of you, you're, you're hearing those numbers, and you, you can certainly think of how that psalm begins, that opening refrain probably, and and your, your mind is going there. And if you're a newer believer and newer to the study of Scripture, that's okay. I'm not, this is not a quiz or a pop quiz. But we have these songs that, that touch us, that meet us, and have probably met us. And if we, if we ask, why is that your favorite psalm? There might be some circumstance of your life that it connected. And the Lord used that at a particular time to give help and comfort and joy. And it gave you words to express to God when you were struggling to find them. Whether it was, again, for just exuberant joy or for deep lament or confession of sin or, or just all kinds of, of things. And so, but probably if we went around the room, I'm not sure if anybody would say Psalm 9. That's not a challenge or something like that, and that's not an indictment. But this is a psalm that is spoken to God's people in a variety of ways through the centuries. I know whose psalm it was a favorite of, and that was John Knox. Uh, it's, he, he made this clear. This is, he was the great Scottish reformer. But this was the psalm that he turned to over and over again in, for his own soul and in preaching. It was, his, it was his source of comfort and encouragement and help in times of distress in particular. 
And so this psalm, it speaks about this great confidence in the Lord, but it's not a confidence that, that David found or that we will find to be really easy or automatic. No, it's David faced real distress and real difficulty in his life. And it's only out of that difficulty and distress that he came to this kind of trust in the Lord. And so we read, look at verse 13 again. See my affliction, Lord, from those who hate me. David knew affliction. David knew trouble. He knew struggle. He knew suffering at the hands of enemies who, who were hate-filled and arrogant and violent and godless. As we'll see, Psalm 10 next Sunday, there, there will be this lengthy description of the wicked of these enemies. So sometimes we read these psalms and we wonder some question like, can I really even identify with this? Is this, is this can this connect to me? Nobody's trying to kill me, at least not that I know of. But most of us don't live in that kind of world. Now, most Christians today do live in that kind of world. They are actively, physically uh, assaulted, persecuted, threatened. But, but all of us live in an environment where there's opposition, where there's suffering, where there's where there are attacks, and we'll talk about some of those. And so the Scriptures remind us that the enemies we face aren't just human enemies who are trying to stick a sword in our back or something like that. There is this world, system, that opposes our faith. That the enemy within us, our flesh, and we have the, the devil who remains our great enemy. Ephesians 6, we fight not against flesh and blood, but against these heavenly powers, dark forces in heavenly realms. The devil is a roaring lion, lion seeking those whom he may devour. And he devours us with temptations and accusations. So we have enemies of our souls. And in the midst of those attacks, we, we have to learn how, how to, to have trust, how to have confidence in the Lord. And so this morning, as we walk through Psalm 9, we're going to see these, I'd say these three trust-building exercises for battered believers. If you feel battered this morning when you walked in this morning, that this isn't we're in a good place for you. And if you don't, praise God, you're going to need these words because you're going to experience this. I'm not threatening threatening you myself, but it's going to happen. We're all sufferers. A couple of introductory remarks about the psalm before we walk through it. One, as I indicated earlier, Psalms nine and ten they they are, or we could say they were, what I would call conjoined twins. Conjoined twins. So conjoined twins are identical twins that, that are joined in utero. Two individual people that are physically attached to one another in some way through some parts of their body in the womb. And so generally we know they, they're separated if that's surgically possible so that they can live fuller lives as separate individuals. But Psalms 9 and 10, they were probably originally joined. One psalm. And, and just a few ways that we can see that is one, Psalm 10 does not have any kind of introductory title like we find in Psalm 9. And honestly, in the first 41 Psalms, that's a very rare thing not to have an introduction. Secondly, there's an acrostic pattern. Uh, you know, uh, this, this is not uncommon in, in the Old Testament, particularly in the Psalms, like uh, in, in Hebrew, uh, in Hebrew language, each, each, where each verse starts with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Well, in, in Psalms 9 and 10, there is an acrostic that bridge that goes through both psalms. So it makes sense that they would belong together. Also, some very old versions of the Old Testament, like the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Latin Vulgate, they did treat these psalms together as one. So if you look in those versions. 
So, were they, if they were originally one psalm, should we just put them back together as one, rejoin them, or should we keep them separate? Well, we're going to treat them separately for a few reasons. One, they are in the in the in the best versions of the Hebrew text that we have. They were they were separated. Second, the moods of these psalms are different. While the circumstances are probably the same, the moods are different. And we're going to see Psalm nine is a song of it's really it's this trusting praise. It's not like the some of the other psalms that are just you know over the top Psalm one hundred fifty joy and praise and thanksgiving. It's in dark, hard times, but it's praising God and thanking Him. Psalm 10, on the other hand, is a lament psalm. So it's, it's, it's crying out in our sorrows to the Lord, taking those to the, to the Lord. Also, the last reason we're treating them separately is longer text means longer sermon. So you can be thankful that we're taking them separately and that we can be done here. All right, Psalm 9, it's written in a crisis, but it's lacking complaints. So it's it it we could we can tell David is in a crisis when he writes Psalm nine because he's he's the need for God to respond now is pressing. Arise, you see, act, do something, do something now about my enemies. That's the appeal of Psalm nine. And so, but while we do find David complaining to the Lord in other Psalms, taking his his complaints to God, not whining, but complaining to the Lord, he's not doing that here. He's, he's appealing to the Lord to act, but he's, it's, it's, here it's praise, it's gratitude, it's trust, it's peace, it's hope. That's the refrain here. So I just say with that in mind, the mountaintop you know, of our lives when everything's just firing on all cylinders, when our lives are just roses and all that, that's not the only place that we can or should sing God's praises. There can be joy in the valley. Some of you know this. There can be gratitude in the midst of real sorrow. There can be singing right in the midst of, of painful sufferings. And again, we know this experientially, and that's exactly what we find in the psalm. So, so the psalm begins before with the inscription to the choir master, according to the Muthlaben, a psalm of David. Now, Muthlaben, some kind of musical notation. We don't exactly know what this is. It was probably a, like the name of the tune. And so... In our, we don't use hymnals here, uh, but if you, you grow up in church, you remember the hymnals. You had the name of the, the hymn at the top, and then at the bottom you would have the tune name. And so we sang, Holy, Holy, Holy. I think the tune name for that is Nicaea or something like that. And so that, that's kind of probably something what we have. So they would know what song, what tune to sing this, these words to. So three trust-building exercises for the battered believer. First one is this, very simply, praise God. Praise God. So throughout Psalm 9, praise is seen as this antidote to fear. It's like the anti-venom for, 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 for worry and, and unbelief. The light of praise, halal, it, it, it chases away this darkness of fear and unbelief. That's, what, that's what's happening here with, with David. Praise is not just you know, a, 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 quote, reaction to the circumstances of our lives where everything's going great. So, yeah, so we praise. No, praise is an action. That, that happens and can happen regardless of our circumstances. We're not just involuntarily, passively reacting to something good that happens to us. No, we're willingly, volitionally, uh, actively fighting fear, feeding faith as we praise and give thanks to the Lord. So verse 1, I will 
give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I, I will do this. What does, it, what does it mean to thank God with our whole hearts? What is, he, what is he talking about? How can we give thanks wholeheartedly, for instance, if our hearts are heavy, sorrowful, for suffering? What if you're not today, brothers and sisters, what if you're not feeling very thankful today? If you're not feeling it, what if, you, what if your heart isn't into it today? Are you, are you just supposed to fake gratitude, put on a smile, you know, hey, PTL, and we just do that thing? Is God duped by that kind of thing? Is God kind of, oh, He must be thankful. No. It helps to understand how we, can, how we can say in the midst of really hard things when He's being attacked and chased and hunted, because I will give thanks to God with my whole heart. How can we say that? We need to understand what the heart is. In Hebrew, the word is lab. It, the heart is, it's the seat of emotions, but it's so much more than that. It's, it's, the, it's the whole inner person, thoughts, feelings, desires, choices, purposes. It's the engine room of your life. And so when David says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart, he's saying, he's saying more than, I will feel very thankful. And he's saying, I choose to offer thanks to the Lord. I will choose to acknowledge His goodness to me, even in this hard time. And I will do this with all of the inner strength that God provides, my whole heart. So I'd say it this way. How do we praise God? We praise God with every ounce of our heavy hearts. If you're afflicted, if your heart is heavy this morning, friends, then you're in an appropriate place to thank the Lord with your whole heart. You may not feel like it, but you are. Your emotions, listen, your emotions are gifts from God. They're not to be mocked or ridiculed, but they, they are not enough to get you there. You can't rely on them, but you can, by God's grace, resolve to give thanks today. And see His goodness and praise Him for it. Whether you have warm fuzzies, whether you have lukewarm fuzzies, whether you have no fuzzies at all inside here, you can thank God and said, say, you did this and you are good. And you're always good. And you do good. And I'm grateful to you from the deepest part of my being. So sometimes we, we say thank you to the Lord when our hearts are just emotionally soaring. And isn't that glorious? I love that. Other times we say thanks from the absolute depths of despair. We say, Lord, you're good. Fred Zaspel, he's a pastor, he's a professor in Pennsylvania. After his 29-year-old daughter died after suffering for years with the disease, he said this, we are hurting for our loss. The pain is massive. And on one level, I'm sure it will never be absent in this life. But deep as this hurt is, we are not left adrift. With minds and hearts, hearts shaped by gospel truth, with the love of God marvelously shed abroad in our hearts by His Spirit, with confidence in His unerring providence, and with an unshakable joy and hope in Christ, God has given us more than all we will need. Scripture assures us that one day God will Quote, wipe away all tears from our eyes. 
says, I doubt that this language was intended to make us envision a gigantic handkerchief of some kind of, uh, or, or some kind of cosmic hug. I suspect, rather, that this comfort will come by means of further revelation. That God will enable us to see things from His perspective. To see His wise purpose as He has worked it out in history unerringly for the good of His people to His own glory. There at last, with, the full, with this fuller understanding, all mourning will be turned to joyful praise. And so even in our loss, we do not doubt that for all eternity, one note of our song, looking back, will be, our God has done all things well. Even if your heart is heavy this morning, give thanks to the Lord with your whole broken, aching heart. Praise God. Praise God also while looking in the rearview mirror. We've got through 1A, so we're off to a great start, I know. 1B, we're just making all kinds of speed here. He says, I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. He's praising God with his memory. He has this history with God. He has a history with God that predates his own life. There's a record of God's goodness and his mercies and his powerful acts, what he calls wonderful deeds here that David can recall. There's one, one commentator said there's this two-track history to remember. There's this redemptive Bible history that we find recorded in Scripture, this record of the Lord's faithfulness to His people in all kinds of circumstances in the biblical story. But there's also this personal history. That, that, that there are multiple episodes of that same faithfulness that we see here in our own lives. We can remember that. So, brothers and sisters, when you're, when you're being battered, praise God by remembering that you have a history with God. There's a story. You can keep, some, some of you probably do, you keep a literal uh, accounting of this in journals and those kinds of things, but certainly keep a mental book of remembrances of God's kindnesses to you. That's, that's, that's part of the way we can give thanks to Him and praise Him with aching hearts because we're looking in the, in the mirror, seeing what's come before. Third, just ways we praise God here. Well, how is this trust-building exercise of praising God? We praise God with a broad range of expression. I know we tend to think because of where we live and our context, like this is what it looks like to give thanks to God and praise God. But look in verses 1 to 2. I will, you just see these words. I will give thanks. I will recount using my mind and memory. I will be glad and exult. I will sing praise. And again, you could just open up the whole Psalter and all of those psalms that many of you recognize or uh, said were your favorites. You look through those psalms and it will be you'll see this multifaceted praise. It's not one-dimensional. It's not just one emotion. It's not just one expression or form. But that's a small point here, but I think it's when we can say praise God with this broad range of expression. And then last, praise, praise God in the assembly of the afflicted. Verses 11 to 12. Just jump down there. In verse 11 to 12, David doesn't just say, I will sing praises to the Lord. And what does he say there? He calls on God's people He's charging them, sing praise. Sing praises to the Lord. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned on Zion. Tell among the people His deeds. Why? Verse 12, For He who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. What is He doing? He's calling on the afflicted. The assembly of the afflicted. The persecuted ones. The, the ones whose blood is being spilt. And He's saying, 
Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord. Tell of His deeds. This song, this is a song for the afflicted assembly. It's for us to sing together. And it was for the, those first ones that received this to sing together. That's why it's a, there's that inscription at the beginning, to the choir master. It's not just you sitting alone in the, in the privacy of your home. This is for us, church. We as battered Christians, individually, we worship in a community of fellow battered believers. In the worshiping, suffering community, there's this tender assurance though, and this is what verse 12 says, that God, God is mindful of us. He's mindful of His afflicted children. He does not forget our cries. Some of you may need that truth, that healing ointment to be kind of rubbed into your soul today and into your circumstances, into your pain this morning. It may seem like you're all alone, brother or sister, but God is mindful. He has not forgotten your cry. So we praise God. That's the, the first kind of trust-building exercise as for the battered Christian. Second, ponder God. Ponder Him. Think about Him. So what allows David to have this very God-oriented perspective in the midst of his affliction is he has his knowledge of the Lord. What A.W. Tozer famously said, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important part about us. Think about us. Let's just so with David. We see this. Verse 10. Those who know your name put their trust in you. God's name is who He is. Those who know who the Lord is, they know His name, they trust Him. David knew the Lord, so he trusted Him. The more you know the Lord, brothers and sisters, the more that you'll trust Him in those very dark and scary and painful, uncertain valleys of life. I mean, I can't even conceive of what it would be like to lose eyesight. But to have a, a guide dog or something like that, it, and, and, um, it takes time for the for that person to, to know, to trust that animal. But once they do, they trust Him implicitly. And so this is, this is we, conversely, the less, you, the, the less you know about God, the less you'll be able, inclined to have confidence in Him. Shallow, we could say this this way, this is not as a skull, but just it's a reality, shallow theology, if we're not going deeper and understanding who God is, not in an academic level, but to know God, that will breed shallow faith. And it's going to be hard when the, when the winds really blow. We need to be deeply rooted in God and who He is, His name. So David's confidence, it doesn't just rest on his personal experiences, but on God's consistent character, His actions, His name, who He is. He's just just and delivering God. So that's what we'll see. What do we need to ponder about God? What is David pondering as he's singing these praises in the midst of this terrible hardship? One, Ponder the inflexibility of God's justice. The inflexibility of His justice. Verses 3 to 8. So justice, that just, just, it, just, it means what is right. The way, the way it should be. Things as it should be. So God's justice, it flows out of His holiness. It's just who He is. It's how He acts. He's just. And God's justice, it can be counted on. It's dependable. It's clockwork. It, he always does what is right. He he always supports the just cause. That's who God is. Now listen, our caution here. Our situation isn't just like David's. We understand that. We are not divinely 
anointed, I'm sorry to bust your bubble, divinely anointed kings and queens here in this sense that David is. We have, we have not been charged with defending our God-given land and our nation from foreign enemies. We're not living in this time. We're not patriarchs. And so we may have real enemies in our lives at school, at work, and on and on, but we don't, we don't want God to utterly destroy them and blot their memory from the face of the earth. I hope that's not how you're praying all the time. We'll come back to that. How, the, how does this fit then? We want God to save them, to change them. Jesus tells us, pray for your enemies. Do good to those who hurt you. But listen, we still want justice. Those aren't contrary. Not that God was, you know, really the God of justice. Now he's a God of mercy. No, no, no. Living on this side of the cross, though, where justice, justice and mercy met and kissed. Living on this side of the cross, we don't just pray for our enemies to come face to face with God's justice only in their total eradication. No, we, we pray they'll come face to face with his justice and mercy at the cross. That's our, that's our first prayer. But we still share with David this hope that justice is going to be accomplished. It will be done. If it's not met at the cross, it will be met ultimately in judgment. And this is a hope. So we ponder God's inflexible justice. And we see this expressed in a few ways in verses 3 to 8. There's, there's this very personal ju- justice. When, when my enemies, verse 3, many, when my enemies turn back, they stumble and they perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. He's thinking very personally, but then he, his mind leaps ahead from his own story, from my enemies, from my cause, to what it prefigures. God's total victory, worldwide, everlasting reign of justice. So as David's deliverances, his victories were these previews of everything that, that's where everything's going. So he goes on in verses 5-6 to six to speak of this national justice. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities were root, you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. And it goes even bigger to this global justice. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established His throne for justice and He judges the whole world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. See, it's expanding. And notice how personal God's justice is. His judgment is. He says it's before your presence. You maintained. You sat. You rebuked. You blotted out. You rooted out. You judge. God is involved. He's not unaware. There's inflexibility to His justice. It's very emphatic in the Hebrew. God Himself will judge the world. And all of those past tense words in verses 5-8, to they're known in Hebrew what's called prophetic perfects in terms of grammar of this. They're describing coming events as if they've already happened. He's saying that their, their fulfillment is so certain, David's referring to them as if they've already taken place. I know this would never happen in any homes of Baraka families, but it, there, in some homes I've heard there are these things called sibling scuffles and stuff like that, where brothers and sisters don't get along real well. So imagine some younger brother pulls some prank on his older brother or does something, you know, pulls his chair out from under them. What does the older brother yell? You are a goner. It's over. Well, nothing's happened yet, but what's he saying? Revenge is going to come. And he's speaking as if it's already happened because it's so certain to happen. That's what's happening here. 
So you can trust God when whatever troubles you're going through, because what has God said? It's over. Justice is justice is coming. It's happening. It's done. Justice is certain. It's as good as done. There's still mop up work until the final day of judgment that's future yet. But it's over, brothers and sisters. So this is why we can sing with a whole heart. God is guaranteed that all will be made right. It will all be as it should be when He comes again. Another thing to ponder about God is the impregnability of His protection. The impregnability of His protection. So, you know, I remember as a kid, I, one of my favorite things to do with my friends and my neighborhood, we, we had some woods back behind our neighborhood and we would build forts all the time. You know, find some cedar tree with little limbs and you'd, you know, think that you were building this impregnable fortress or something like that. And, and you know, we'd even find like scraps of barbed wire and, you know, these little booby traps and stuff and these little paths to wind through and get in there. We thought we were so, we had just created this, uh, this amazing thing. Is it keeping anybody out? No, not likely. But, but God doesn't offer us the protection of a child's fort. He offers us this impenetrable stronghold in himself. In himself. Look at verse 9. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. A stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. The Lord is a stronghold. He's, he's a refuge. The word has to do with height. And it could either mean that it's this high point that's out of the enemy's reach or that the, the walls are so high, uh, this high-walled fortress. But listen, as loud and as violent as the enemies are, they can't ultimately get to us. That's what he's saying. We are safe in the Lord who is our refuge, out of their reach, untouchable. David knew this temporarily, and throughout his life he was hunted by Saul. And this is a repeated theme in the Psalms. Now listen, as Christians, we know this more wonderfully and more completely, don't we? That, that our bodies may be touchable, but not our souls. Our bodies may be killed, Martin Luther says. It's truth about it still, but we're kept by God in the refuge of Christ's love. This is what Romans 8 tells us, Romans 8, 36 and following. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. His impregnability of God's protection. Last, what do we ponder? We ponder the destiny of God's enemies. Verse 15, the nations have sunk in the pit that they have made and the net that they hid. Their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made Himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. Again, I think those past tenses of verse 15 to 16, there there are again these prophetic perfects. They're, they're viewing an end uh, as a, this accomplished uh, um, accomplished fact. They will be caught in the trap that they've said it's as good as done. I mean, we were on Esther not that long ago, uh, and you can I think there's a great illustration. Now, this was after David, so he's not thinking of this. But you remember, and I'm going to recap the whole story, but you remember Haman is hanged on the gallows that he made to kill Mordecai. He's trying to wipe out the Jews, and he makes these gallows to hang Mordecai, and in, the, in God's strange and 
in Providence, he ends up being hanged on, hanged on the, his own gallows. And so this is the very thing. Psalm 9 saying, essentially, people like Haman, they fall in the pit that they dig. They're caught in their own nets. Verses 17 to 18, The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God, for the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. The wicked will return to Sheol, the place of the dead. That, that subterranean place, that's how it's viewed in the Old Testament, of, of, of where dead people went. For some, this was a place of comfort, Abraham's bosom. For, for, for others, it's a place of torment, Hades, hell. The wicked go to the place of torment. But he doesn't just say that. He says the wicked return. They will return to Sheol. They'll just go there, but they'll return there. And what I think what he's saying is death is their native land. This is who they are. This is, this is therefore where they're going to go back to. And so we have, I think connected to that, we have this responsibility, brothers and sisters, to warn people of a real, literal hell. Those who reject Christ. And, and, and you think conversely for us, what, is that, what do we say? We say we are, we, are, we are pilgrims. We're sojourners now. This is not our home. We're citizens of heaven. We have this dual citizenship because we do live here and we have to be engaged in, as citizens here, but we are, we are sojourners. We're going to where we belong. And it's only by the grace of Jesus Christ and through faith in Him. So praise God. Ponder God. Third, trust-building exercise. Plead with Him. Plead with Him. So the, the first mention of David's present distress comes in verse 13. Be gracious to me, O Lord, See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. What do we plead with God? We plead with Him first to take pity. To take pity. You note that contrast between the, the quote, gates of death and the, quote, gates of the daughter of Zion. This place of no blessing and this place of blessing. That's the contrast. Now, what is it? What's the difference between those two places? The place of no blessing, death, the place of blessing. What is the difference? What makes the difference? It's grace. It's grace. That's how the sentence, that's how he says what he's saying. It starts, be gracious to me, O Lord. That's his plea. David doesn't approach God on any good supposed, you know, any supposed goodness in himself or any merit or achievement that he, for which he believes he should be uh, rewarded. What does he do? He comes as a sinner seeking mercy. Be gracious to me, O Lord. What does God's grace result in then? Not, not just personal satisfaction, but praise and glory to God. You see that in verse 14. Be gracious to me. This is how the shortened version of the sentence will be. Be gracious to me that I might recount all your praises and I may rejoice in your salvation. And then the other thing we plead God with, with God for is to take action. Verse 19, Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men, Selah. He's asking the Lord to, to just put down the, the swaggering arrogance of the nations. That's not a bad prayer for us there as well. Not because we are better, but but but. Let to, to let people know, because this is where the Lord had to bring us. Let them know that they're men. They're frail. 
They need God. Pray for God to take action and make people realize that they are mere frail mortals in need, desperate need of God's salvation. Well, that's it's not the happiest sermon, is it? <laughs> happiest psalm. I probably haven't convinced anybody to make Psalm 9 their favorite psalm or something like that. It, it, it's full of praising and singing and gladness. We see that, but we're still like, mm, I don't know. It may not be your favorite like John Knox's. Or you may even be thinking, this is kind of a twisted God. Kind of grumpy people of God here. If this is what praise is. What, what about the love of God? Where's John 3.16 in all of this psalm here? Here's the thing I think that may be lost on many of us today. Listen, God's love for His Son and God's love for His people means that God will judge the wicked. And that, listen, God vindicates His own righteousness, His own holiness, when He, for the sake of His name, punishes the wicked. If God doesn't judge the wicked, He's not righteous. He's not holy. He, he is, in fact, not a just God. But that's not all. God vindicates and protects His people. It's out of love. When He, for the sake of His love for us, punishes the wicked. If God doesn't judge the wicked, He's not loving. He's not good. He is, in fact, not a gracious God. To profess to love a child while refusing to deal with those who would bring harm to that child would be a lie. So true love defends the one and condemns the other. And so we need to praise and pray and with joy and gladness over the justice and righteousness of God. That's a help, honestly, in times like we're living. We're seeing these headlines. Again, it's not out of arrogance that we're better it's just, no, but for the grace of God, go we, but God, bring it in. This, this begins with seeing His punishment of Jesus on our behalf. That's where it really points us, isn't it? To the cross. And we're going to know that we know that one day it's going to end when God executes His judgment against the wicked, those who don't trust in Christ. But church, we, we can rejoice in, in our enthroned God. He is just and He will judge the wicked for the glory of His name. And we can rejoice that God's judgment against us has been paid. Paid for by Jesus on the cross. And I would just say, if you are here today, and you're without Christ, and you don't have to be a mass shooter. But to Jesus, Jesus says for you to be perfect. That's the standard. And yet all have sinned, and we fall short of the glory of God. And so the warning is this, as we... We will face judgment if we don't turn to Jesus for refuge. And yet the doors are open. The, the, the invitation has been given. Look to Christ. Find forgiveness. Find grace. Find mercy in your time of need. Today is the day to plead for His grace. To throw yourself on His mercy as you look to Christ. Believe in Him now. Call on Him now to save you. He will forgive. He will pardon. Revelation 21, which is again, in, I think even this psalm, it's looking ahead to this day when all will be right and Christ returns. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, 
It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Somebody says, to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of, wa- of the water of life without payment. Oh, what a beautiful invitation. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, these next couple make us consider current events. As for murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. There's warning, but there's invitation. Are you thirsty this morning? What does Jesus say? Come and drink. It's free. Come to me. Are you weary this morning? Not just your body because you didn't sleep well last night, but is your soul weary? Weighed by sin, weighed by sorrow because of life in this fallen world and you're without hope in this world. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He gives rest. So let's pray. Lord, we... Thank you that we who are in Christ, we know this rest in Jesus. And we confess we don't always live like it. We can become restless and we can doubt your love and we can, can, can think that there might be something out there that could separate us from your love for us in Christ Jesus. But as we've reminded this morning, help us to, to, to come again and again and look to Jesus as our only hope. 